Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are up in the hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalad. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me again, Steve Evans. Welcome into the program, sir. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having me back again. Hey, thanks for being here. So I want to start out with the email. Before I get to email, I want to give a reminder. The way to participate in the program. The program only works. Ask Noah Show. You have to ask us questions for us to answer them. program only works if you write into the program. So send us your comments, your questions, your concerns. Live at AskNoahShow.com. What happens? We have fairies. And the fairies go through, and I'm just kidding, it's Steve. We don't want to call him a fairy. He reads through all the email and organizes it into different categories. And so when we get a one-off question or a response to a particular user, we just address it in the show. But when more than one person writes into the show and says, well, I have a question or a comment about this, I have a question or comment by that, and we start to see a pattern, a collection of need in the community, that's when we can take a little bit of extra time, focus on something, and dig in and do an entire segment on that thing. Now, that process only works if you write into live at asknoshow.com, so we invite you to do that as well as participate in our new questions bot. That happens in the Geek Lab. You can join the Geek Lab from any web browser by going to geeklab.ninja. The questions bot is at questions, colon, Linux, Delta dot com. Now, you PM that question bot. You can do that any time throughout the week. And the question bot will have it ready for us when we kick off the show. Our first email comes in this week from... Uh, Jaskar Hawk. Jaskar writes in and says, Hello, Noah. Listener for a while. First time writing in. I'm listening to the Migrating a Network and a NAS. Ask Noah episode 248. The first question was about a cache paid VPN option. Now, my hackerspace went through the journey about finding a more privacy respective VPN. Personally, I use a DigitalOcean droplet with the Road Warrior script, and it gives a link to the GitHub slash NYR OpenVPN install. And that's essentially going to spin up an OpenVPN server on a DigitalOcean droplet. Uh, he continues to say, but, and he puts this in quotes, Bob swore by Mullivad and links to Mullivad pricing. Under the still got questions section, they address how you can pay, including cash. I also like pointing people in the direction uh, of this site for great resources and he links to privacy tools.io slash provider slash VPN, which is a fantastic site, not just for VPNs, but for all uh, resources and services related to protecting your privacy. And if you want a deep dive, check out the Privacy and Security OS Int Tool podcast. You can learn more at inteltechniques.com slash podcast slash HTML. Now, one of the things 
I should probably point out here is that some of the things on that podcast are legally questionable and the host goes so far as to say so from time to time. So just understand that if you go down that road. Hey, thanks a lot, Jaskar, for writing in and letting us know about that. I would not have guessed that there were VPN providers out there that allowed you to pay with cash. So that's an interesting uh, addition to my knowledge base that that exists. Um, and uh, and a huge thanks uh, for the suggestion of the Digital Ocean Droplet. The, the one thing I would say there is, right, and we're going to talk about this later when we get to our news section uh, as it relates to Proton Mail. You need to be cautious about any time you're paying for a service because if you have a billing agreement with a particular service, they do have a certain amount of information on you. Now, that is an, that email that came in from Jaskar is in response to an email from Charlie last week. Charlie writes back this week and says, G'day. Following up on the situation of paying for online services with cash and anonymous accounts, I'd like to draw your attention to Incognet. And you can learn more at incognet.io, Molvad VPN, Molvadbot.net, nearly free speech web hosting that accepts mailed-in checks and money orders. And he gives a link to nearlyfreedspeech.net slash about slash FAQ payment. Another option besides Tor is alt DNS providers such as Altnick, and he links to altnick.org. Altnick is discussed here, and he gives a link to the Hacker Public Radio podcast 3323, uh, Hacker Public Radio. Dot org. We'll have that link, of course, for you in the show notes. So, Charlie, as always, thanks for writing in. Thanks for continuing to keep us informed. And thanks for the fantastic question last week that resulted in us all learning about cash-paid VPNs. Steve, does it surprise you to learn that there are providers out there that allow you to pay with cash? I mean, I think it, it does for sure. I, I was looking at the Mulvad from um, Jessica's email, and I was reading their FAQ, and basically the way that they do it is you put your cash in an envelope with a token that's generated by the website, and that's how they know who's paid uh, for what. I think that's kind of interesting. They, I'd be curious to see how they maintain that like long-term. If they get a large number of people doing that, how do you continue to make sure that your token is not identified with you in some way? It's an interesting question, but it's, it's definitely putting you not at the bottom rung. You know, they say not to be the low-hanging fruit. I'd say you're definitely not the low-hanging fruit. There's going to be a, a substantial amount of uh, effort put in to, in order to unmask you if you're paying like this. Yeah, a lot of times when people ask about privacy, we have discussions, and or even a client will ask about privacy, we'll have the discussion, and I'll ask them a question that they typically haven't thought of, and that is, what is your perceived threat vector? And a lot of times people will take a step back, and what do you mean, what is my perceived threat vector? What does that mean exactly? I say, well, what do you think is going to happen? What, what are you trying to defend against? And from that point, we typically take one of two directions. One direction is what I would consider to be the reasonable direction. They'll say something like, well, I don't want somebody to take my laptop, and so I'm looking to prevent that via disk encryption. I don't want my ISP to collect information on me that they, should, that they don't need access to, so I'd like to use a VPN. Those are what I consider reasonable answers. Where, where we get into unreasonable territory is... Well, I want to prevent all government officials from ever tampering with my laptop. And that's the point where I have to, where, where we kind of have to take a step back and say, okay, if that's your, if that's your threat vector, if you're really worried about defending against 
you know, uh, governments, you have to be aware of the massive budget that comes along with professional intelligence agencies, right? The reality is, unless you plan to hug on, hold on to your laptop and hug it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, take it with you into the bathroom, into the shower, with you everywhere, never let it out of your sight, never fall asleep without having your hand on, unless you're willing to go to that kind of extreme, uh, there's always the possibility of it being physically tampered with. And so it's going to be very difficult to defend against those kinds of attacks. And then even if you decide I'm going to handcuff it to my wrist and it's coming with me literally everywhere, then you have to deal with all of the potential software that you've installed where there could be some backdoors, right? So it's not really feasible. My point there is it's not really feasible to defend against an attacker who's truly determined. If you really are targeted and the budget is sufficient, uh, it's going to be very hard to defend against. Would you say that's accurate, Steve? Yeah, I would. I would, and I don't normally attack it from, um, you know, what's your threat vector because most people don't understand that. But I ask similar leading questions along the lines of, why are you doing this? And a lot of times, the why can actually help narrow down what you're after. And for me personally, it really is just don't be the low hanging fruit. If someone is really set to, you know, make my life very difficult, that is going to happen, right? There's only a limited amount of defense and time in the day that I can put towards my own um, cyber defense, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. And a determined adversary is going to is going to do it because I don't have that time. So I just want to be, I want to be not the low hanging fruit. I think that's a great way to look for it. Look at you being, uh, being uh, all respectful of people and and uh, putting it in language that they can understand. Look at me trying to be uh, infosec there. Hey, Ryan Georges joins us from Georgia. Ryan, you're on Ask Noah. How can we help you today? Hey, Noah. Thanks for uh, taking my call. I am. Uh, I need to upgrade my Wi-Fi in my home, and uh, someone has given me a, a friend has given me a Unify APLR three-pack, so that's what I was going to go with, and I know you've talked about uh, Unify access points off and on in the past. Um, so a couple of questions kind of to get started. I know that, um, or, or I've heard you talk about before setting up a controller, which is a bit unique to me because I'm, you know, access points in the past have always just kind of been standalone. Um, so been kind of grappling with that just a little bit, and a couple of thoughts, um, I guess, First thought was um, I've played around with Podman a little bit and thought, hey, maybe there's a Podman container out there just already set up with the controller software that you know that I that I could use and would make it easy. Um, as I search, there's a, a lot of stuff out there and um, that comes up when I search for Unify. So I guess first question may be, would you recommend using um, a container for the uh, for the uh, controller software. Okay, so um, let me uh, let, let let me back up a little bit. So I would I would say this: your first option, if you want just kind of a brain reset, and you say to yourself, "Hey, I'm used to access points having their own controller built right into it, and this idea of setting up a a, a separate controller is confusing to me." or otherwise off-putting, I would highly suggest you take a look at the Unify Cloud Key. The reason is, 
you can buy uh, the Unify Cloud Key for like, uh, I think they're like 80 bucks, 90 bucks. And what that will do for you is be the controller on the access point that it didn't come with. And so you could start there and then it would function essentially like every other access point you've ever used. You'd log into that box and it would just have everything there for you. So I want to put that on the table right away. Um, aside from that, I'd also want to put on the table, not that I would recommend you do this, but another option for you if you just want to get them up and working, you can configure those access points just with an app on your phone. You can download the Unify um, network app and it will it will let you configure the access points right from the app on your phone. So that's the second way of doing it. Now, the downside, uh, there really isn't a downside to the cloud key. The cloud key is literally a little Atom computer running Debian and the controller software on top. It's just for 80 bucks, they ship you a, a ready-to-go box. Um, the downside to running it on your phone is obviously it, you have to be very cognizant about backing up the configuration and all of that off of your phone. If you ever get a new phone and you go to change your Wi-Fi password, you're going to find out, <clears throat> oh, I, I can't do that. So, so, so th there's there's an issue there that I would want to think through. Now, as far as running Unify in in a Docker container in Podman. Yes, you can do that. Um, there are blogs that are up that actually walk you through uh, installing that, and I believe Docker.com actually has a a, a Fedora Docker with um, with the latest Unify controller running in it. And so I'll see if I can track that down and have a link for you in the show notes. And so that's absolutely a way you could go. If you have a virtual host or if you have a computer and you're willing to virtualize, that may be another way to do it. And this is oftentimes what we do at client sites. They come in and say, hey, we're looking for to have a unified controller. We don't have a cloud key. Um, we don't want to use your uh, cloud controller. We want something on site. Okay, well, we spin up a VM, install Debian, install the, add the repo for the unified controller, install the unified network controller, and Bob's your uncle, you're good to go. Does that at least answer your first question about being able to run it in Docker. Yeah, I guess um, <clears throat> I, I, I have looked at uh, docker.io and a number of options come up, and I guess that's maybe just a kind of a tangential question is, you know, where, how, how do you, is there a way to kind of vet the different, um, can I trust if it's coming from docker.io that it's, you know, that I can trust it? How, how um, you know, is there a way to vet things like that? I guess I had some nervousness about just pulling down a container that I don't know where, you know, where, where it's from and trusting it. You know, I'm going to let Steve jump in here because, Steve, you may, you have a very interesting take on uh, how you use containers. You typically won't pull containers, do you? No, I build my own. Um, but to answer your question, what you're looking for when you're accessing a public registry like Docker or even Red Hat or wherever is they will publish an author and click through, right? So if if there's like a username or it says this is hosted by such and such a project, there's usually a link through. Don't just read it and say, you know, oh, that must be from because I've seen um, I've seen repos get put up that say they're from such and such a project. But when you actually click through the link, it's either dead or, you know, it links you somewhere else. So you always track it back. Ideally, you would start at the project itself. So, I mean, in this case, I don't know if Unify would link out to Docker, but let's say, um, let's do something silly and just say MB, which is an open source um, competitor to Plex, right? You go to MB's website and they'll usually link to Docker or say, here's the Docker pull command. 
Um, and then you can kind of cross-reference. You go to the Docker Hub, you click on the username, and it should bring you back to the main page. You're absolutely right to be wary of things that are controlling your network like this. If it was, you know, I'm just one-off, want to pull a container just to, to play around with the thing, I'm not going to put anything sensitive in it, you're probably okay-ish. But uh, your skepticism is well-earned because there's a lot of things that look legit, or even more what I run into with my clients is there is something that was legit. Someone took it, repackaged it, and say, put a crypto miner in it. So it legitimately has the software in it that you want, but it also has additional software, and the repo looks legitimate. And so you have to be very, let's say, discerning when you're looking at pulling something off the open internet like that. So very good instincts. Um, I'll throw out a bonus at you here, having gone through this exercise myself. Um, so I have the Unify stuff here, and I was running it in Podman, and then I moved it out to a virtual machine. And then I decided I was going to start playing around with VLANs. And let me tell you, it is really hard to have either your containers or your VM on a VLAN that is not the management VLAN. And so if you, um, if people are interested in talking about this sort of stuff, let no one I know, because he and I can definitely have a decent conversation about what it's like to kind of deal with VLANs from a management standpoint, you know, just at a, a high level. But it, it can be a real big pain if you're trying to do anything interesting within a container for VLANs or any kind of advanced stuff that the Unify stuff can do, because it gets into a lot of kind of virtual networking that can be difficult. But if all you're doing is just access points, you know, a container will work fine. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I'm not kind of at that level yet. That's kind of, I'd like to get there, um, um, understanding more about VLANs and playing around with that, but I'm, I'm not there now. So that's maybe kind of in the distant future. So, um, Okay, so so doable. You, you actually, Steve, you actually have run um, a, a unified container in in a, a unified controller in a container, but you actually build your own. You would just build a Debian, a simple Debian um, container, and then you would just install the software directly, as opposed to um, necessarily trusting whatever um, from a repository of containers on the internet. Um, and I guess that doesn't scare me too much. I mean, that seems kind of doable. Obviously, that's a, would be a small project, but it doesn't seem um, – sounds like a good project. I would enjoy doing it. Um, I guess the last question I would have in this um, – in terms of I've got a 5,000-square-foot home and um, a good number of devices. There's eight people in the home and a good number of devices. And so trying to think about – placement of the um, right now I've just got one access point and um, you know I'd like to I think I could probably use a couple but how would you go about I mean I kind of thought maybe just set one up in the most central place and then you know do a little research on how to test um, the, the range of that to determine if I should set up more is that how you would go about it So I guess I'll start and then I'll kick it over to Noah. Um, so I do things a little less professionally because I don't I don't set up people's networks like Noah does. Um, I tend to start kitty corner. 
because it so I, I normally start with at least two and like I said kind of diagonally across from each other with the thought being that most of the time people are not going to be in the most central part in the house so if that is this if that's the point of overlap where my two devices are going to hand off between each other like they're going to cross between one access point to the other it's okay because most of the time the central place in the house is like a kitchen or a laundry room or something of that nature where people actually aren't going to need the strongest signal. More likely you're going to be kind of on the periphery of your house. And um, I, yeah, so I normally set up with two and, and um, attempt to find that balance of, of where, where I can actually get the signal to hand off. Because if you, obviously if you're too far apart, then you have some dead zone, but uh, no, what do you think? So I, I don't do kitty corner per se, but I follow your general premise, right? The, if, if typically what you find people complaining about is I have dead zones. And so what I'll do is I'll start at the edge of the, uh, of the property and work my way in towards the center. And then on those center two access points, the center two most access points, we overlap and keep 20 dB of signal separation. So if you go to one access point and you're looking at the signal drop off, you want to see a 20 dB drop from one to the next. And that's how you know you have enough overlap that you won't have uh, that the, the client isn't going to drop. When I say clients, I'm talking about, you know, handheld device, laptop, phone, those kinds of things. At the same time, you also don't want the access points canceling each other out, creating too much noise. Okay, and do you do you just use an app, uh, either on a smartphone or even just on your laptop, to yep. know what that uh, dB? Yeah, we used to have a we used to pay for actual devices, but these days um, there is a there is a a uh, an app called Wi-Fi Analyzer. It's available in the Google Play Store, and it does. Okay, so let me give the disclaimer. Right, the the uh, the sensitivity of the radio inside of your phone is not going to be the world's best, you know, uh, analyzing equipment. However, at the same time, it it does a good enough job. The other thing is, uh, if you have more than one access point inside of the controller, it will actually tell you uh, what neighboring access points it can see and how much overlap there is, and so you can do it inside of the controller as well. Oh, okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, that's a lot of good information to get me... I think to get me started. I, uh, so I'm thinking that uh, looking at Unify's site, the Unify Network application for Debian, Ubuntu, and Unify Cloud Key is the software that that I. That's the controller software that I'm looking for. Is that correct? Well, so the well, it is. However, you don't want the Cloud Key version because the Cloud Key version is for flashing specifically to their hardware. So you just want the regular Unify controller software. That's what's intended for general you know, a, a general Debian box, so to speak. Okay. Okay. I'll All get right. a link I'll in the show notes for you about what I did with Ubuntu here just recently, and we'll make sure that we get that into the show notes. That would be hey, Ryan, bef- Thank you. Hey, Ryan, before we let you go, I want to bring uh, our, our interactive matrix room in. They have some stuff to add for you on the podcast side or uh, on the uh, Podman side. Oh, okay. Is that uh, on? Is that a Telegram group? Uh, no, uh, it's it, it, you should be able to hear them. Uh, guys, are you with me? Can you hear me? Is this thing on? We can. This thing is on. We can hear you. All righty then. Yeah. So this is in the Matrix room. Um, the geek 
I forget what the URL is because I'm in it for so long. I don't, I don't know. Geeklab.ninja. Um, yeah, there we go. Geeklab.ninja. Um, but the, the in with regards to like using a container or whatnot, like Steve's advice is good about making sure that you you are able to you know that you understand how a container is made. Uh, that being said, the Fedora container that was being re- uh, the container made by somebody that's Fedora based to do it uh, is actually made by a friend of mine, Joe Doss, who specializes in this kind of stuff of containerizing applications and getting them running. Uh, uh, he used to also do them with virtualization and he's doing it with containers and stuff. Um, but my advice to you is that no matter what container you choose, whether you're going to handcraft it yourself or if you're going to use something from the internet, don't actually use the image that they give you. Go get the original Docker file or container file or other kind of image description that's used to produce it and run that. Because that's the only way you're absolutely certain you know what's actually in the image. Because um, without that bit, like, all you're doing is you're, you're loading in, like, hundreds of megabytes of mystery fat. And you don't want to do that. So that being the container, I think Noah will add it to the show notes. The the container image that, that was mentioned earlier, the Docker file is public. It's on GitHub. Clone it, fork it, use it, and build build it for your use. And I think you'll be fine. That's really good advice. Okay. I like that. I, I really often do that when I'm using it for reference. But yeah, that is that is even better way to make sure that the thing that you're running is exactly what you think it is because a Docker file for people not familiar um, or a container file, I guess, doesn't have to be Docker, is literally just, it's essentially a shell script telling it what to install and what ports to listen on. So yeah, I second that. Very good add-on. Anything else we can help you with, Ryan? Uh, that's a lot of good information. Thanks. Hey, we appreciate the call. Thanks for calling. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Our fourth email comes in tonight from Veratonda. Veritanda writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I heard you talking about UPSs and servers the other day, and it made me wonder what you do given this situation. So you have all of your servers hooked up to UPS, and they're being monitored for power levels. So when the power goes out, the batteries can get to a certain level, and then the server can begin a graceful shutdown sequence. Depending on the load of the server, this can take a few minutes, and that is fine. However, we have a problem now. In the BIOS, you only have two options, really, either manual power on or return to the last state in which the power was removed. The trouble is that with the last condition is never fulfilled if the UPS, because if it shuts down and powers off cleanly, so when the power does return, the server will not power on because the last state was off. I've tried various workarounds for this for myself, having a third-party machine turn on the servers remotely or even having a power-on alarm from the BIOS Uh, from Linux and having the machine wake up at specific time. None are terribly reliable. So I wonder if there's anything else you did to deal with servers that might be shut down where you want them to come back on automatically without power intervention. Thanks for the insights, Veritanda. So uh, we, I I guess it it probably depends uh, on, on what server platform that you're using i've there on some of them there's actually a third option which is just power on um so this is very popular in the super micro line of servers if there's power but the machine comes on 
Um, and so in like the data center, that's where we have all of our, like our V host and our free NAS box and stuff like that. That's how that's handled. Not that we ever really experienced power loss there, but, um, that is our plan on how that works in every other circumstance. We have a couple of different ways to deal with that. Oftentimes, if I'm honest with you, the, there's usually a call to the client and Hey, uh, power's back on, power's stable. Can we go ahead and power everything back on? Yes, you can. They walk back there and they push the button. The automation is really designed to preserve the data, not necessarily to bring everything back online afterwards. Things that come to mind that you can try. I've not personally tried this, but things that come to mind that, that one could try. I wonder if even with the server powered off of some of the server management utilities, um, could potentially allow you to do like a wake on land sort of deal. Uh, and so as long as there was power to the server, um, could you set up iDRAC or, or set up wake on land to, to come on and say, hey, you can power this, this server back on at a specific time. Steve, have you ever dealt with something like this or, or walked around this problem? Yep, absolutely. Uh, wake on land is the way to go. Keep a list of your MAC addresses because that's what you use to send the special packet. Um, it has been my experience that you don't even have to do any uh, fooling in the BIOS to turn this on. Um, now, some places may explicitly turn it off for security or other reasons, but most of the uh, the servers that I have kicking around my house, including desktops, I, I literally just maintain a list of MAC addresses and I have a little uh, WL, WOL.sh file hanging around on my laptop and I just run that if the, if the boxes don't come up on their own. Fantastic. Very well. Um, our last email comes in from John. John writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I love the show and get to write in from time to time because I'm busy during the live broadcast and can't call in. I went to 100% Linux at home over a year ago. Now, I love Pop! OS. Anyway, I need to create a Windows VM for a particular use case, and here's what I'm writing in for. I've done some research online, and to my amazement, a computer sold by an OEM with Windows 8 or later, probably stores the Windows product key in the BIOS. I found a way to read that value in Linux, pseudo string slash sys slash firmware slash ACPI slash table slash MSDM. I hope your listeners who have hardware that came with Windows might have a spare license that they didn't even know about. Friends don't let friends buy unnecessary Windows licenses. Now for my grievances with Windows. Number one. Windows 10 Home Install uses 23 gigabytes of disk space. I created a virtual disk with 25 gigabytes total, and now I need to start all over. Grievance number two. Associating the product key and activating it requires a Microsoft online account. Once you do that, it auto-converts the local user to an online-based account. Grievance number three. The bloat is terrible. My basic Windows install has ads and installs of software I didn't want nor need. Thank goodness for your shows to keep my confidence and keep going with Linux at home. Have a great show, John. John, thank you for writing in. I think we've talked about the uh, the pseudo strings before in the show, but we'll make sure to put a link back in the show notes. So if you're looking to take advantage of the Windows license that is embedded inside of your BIOS, go ahead and do that. John, I have bad news for you coming up later uh in the year, or maybe next year, when Windows 11 rolls out, you're in for a bad surprise because they are going to require that online account for any non-professional version of Windows. And so I think that's going to get worse before it gets better. (laughs) 
in the news this week is Proton Mail. Now, we have sung Proton Mail's praises over and over and over again. They are the end-to-end encrypted email, and Steve and I both use Proton Mail for our personal email because we trust in their privacy. Well, an article came out this week in the Hacker News, thehackernews.com, that talks about how an activist's IP address was given to the authorities. Quote, end-to-end encrypted email service provider ProtonMail has drawn criticism after it after it ceded to a legal request and shared the IP address of an anti-gentrification activists with law enforcement authorities leading to their arrest in France. The Switzerland-based company said that it received a legally binding order from the Swiss Federal Department of Justice related to the collective call for youth for climate, which it was obligated to comply with, compelling it to hand over the IP address and information related to the type of device used by the group to access the Proton Mail account. Put simply, Proton Mail will not only have to comply with Swiss government orders, but it will be forced to hand over relevant data when individuals use the service engage in activities that are deemed illegal in the country. This includes monitoring the IP address from the users in extreme criminal cases according to its transparency report. On its website, Proton advertises that, quote, no personal information is required to create your secure email account. And by default, we do not keep IP logs, which can be linked to your anonymous account. Your privacy comes first. In the blog post titled, Important Clarify... Well, I want to stop there for a second. So, a couple things there. Um, this, in large part, is being taken out of context. The idea that they don't log your IP address by default is not synonymous with they don't have any information to track on you whatsoever and and will never under any circumstances be able to give that to law enforcement and if that's the belief that you're under then you're misguided and i think what i wanted to draw attention to when you sign up i have a paid proton mail account okay to in order for the company proton mail to bill me Noah Chalaya, they have to know a certain amount of information about me. They have to know my name. They have to know my billing address. I have to give them my credit or debit card information, or I have to pay with some sort of anonymous currency. And so there's a certain amount of billing information that goes into that paid account that they have access to. Now, Switzerland has strong privacy laws, but and uh, this has been pointed out on the program before, they're not totally impenetrable, number one, and number two, they're not a cloak for illegal activity. And so if you thought that there was a company out there that just exists for you to uh, to use as a shroud for illegal activity, then you're sadly mistaken. That's not what privacy is about, and that's not what we promote, and that's not what ProtonMail has set out to accomplish. Now, from a technical perspective, is your email secure? Yes, it is. It's encrypted. It is. You are the only one with the private key. But in order for that to remain effective, you must make sure that the email is delivered to another encrypted account, which in this case, in the case of Proton, would only be another Proton email user. Now, Proton, the company, does not have access to those private keys. So there is no way for them to comply with any legal order to get the content of the email. But everything else outside of that, if it's accessible, is can be turned over to law enforcement. Now, do I fault them for not being more clear about that they don't log your IP by default and now there's a case that's come out that has shown that in certain circumstances they're compelled to log an IP address and turn that information over? Yes, they could have been more clear about that. But to their credit, they immediately came out with a 
blog post titled Important Clarifications Regarding the Arrest of Climate Activists, in which Andy Yen went on to say that the company can, of course, be forced to collect information on accounts belonging to user under the Swiss criminal investigation. And this obviously is not done by default, but if a Proton, uh, if the Proton company gets a legal order for a specific account, they have no choice. And they go on to revise their privacy policy to explicitly spell out that they can be forced to log user's IP address if found in violation. Now, where I think ProtonMail has and continues to set itself apart is they have a fundamental belief in privacy. And so they are going to be transparent about this information when it's clear that their users are not aware of how this works. Above and beyond that, they go as far as to say, here are some ways that you could prevent us from having your IP address. You could access it via Tor. You could access it via VPN service. In fact, they go as far as to say that under current Swiss law, email and VPNs are treated differently. And so while they can be forced to log IP addresses for Proton email, uh, Proton VPN cannot be compelled to log user data. And so, the, and so by default, they don't know what the identity of the user is and at no point during this legal proceeding were they ever aware of what who the target was all they knew was that they received a legal order from the swiss government that came through a, a channel specifically reserved for serious crimes and they asked their legal department is there anything that we can do to prevent giving this information they said no you must do this and so they had to do it and so they come forward and say here's what we can be compelled to do if you weren't aware of that now you are and here's how you can avoid us having that information in the first place i'm not sure there's any more privacy respecting way that you can go about doing this and if you say to yourself well that's just unreasonable why didn't they why didn't they stick it to the just put your foot down in the sand draw a line you know this is what happened with Lava Bit, right? Guy tried to, tried to put the, the foot in the sand and, 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 and really draw a hard line, and it didn't work, and Lava Bit is now no more. Um, so there is a fine balance between respecting users' privacy, staying compliant within a legal system, and then clearly communicating that to your users. And I, my perception is that ProtonMail has done that as best as can be expected of them given the circumstances. Steve, what are your thoughts? I think that the key words here are by default. Um, I think that people that are um, really up in arms about the fact that, that there are IP being stored somewhere, um, that those things are stored temporarily anyways. It, stored may be the wrong word, but, but there's any time that you're, especially when you're connecting to things, over web, like webmail or in your browser or anything like that, there's a lot of, uh, you know, connection established from such and such an IP. And it's, it's done that way on purpose in the TCP stack to make sure that you, you get your messages. And so when people get up in arms about this, I, I understand because I, I put on my tinfoil hat when it comes to privacy myself, but mm. it is just a function of the way the technology works currently that, while we may not write the files out to disk, they are absolutely happening somewhere in the background, even if it's just being written to, you know, it's being stored in memory and then thrown out as soon as the packet goes. It still is there, which means that anyone could compel them to give over that information, right? We, we've got that XKCD comic that goes back that's, that's talking about encryption, about, you know, he does all of these crazy things to make himself secure. 
And what breaks the encryption is a $2 hammer and a broken hand. Like that, that's kind mm-hmm. of the sort of way that I fall down on this is they did what they could. And aside from completely shutting down, which probably wouldn't have actually done anything, um, I think that they, they did what they could. Our next guest, it is my pleasure to welcome Wukash Edachinsky to the program from Pine64. Wukash, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I'm super excited for us to be able to have a discussion about Pine64. I want to kick off by asking you a little bit about DevZone. Tell me a little bit about what DevZone is, what it will do for Pine64 devices, and why the Pine Note in particular is special to DevZone. So first of all, thank you for having me. Secondly, really good job on pronouncing my first and second name. (laughs) I applaud you. Good job. And with respect to DevZone, DevZone is a way for us to organize how our community contributors work with each other, uh, contribute and share uh, their uh, development, and for us to have a closer and a more direct connection with uh, our community developers and contributors. And so, but also so that our partner projects, so this would be, you know, some of the obvious um, examples being Manjaro and say KDE, but also the guys from UBports and others, so that they can also work directly and exchange knowledge with, um, uh, with community contributors. So that everybody's kind of got one place where they can share information, uh, comment on, uh, say, hardware revisions, uh, pitch their ideas. And so that it is in a way that we can go back in half a year or, or even a year or two years and have like a systematic log of all the information being shared, all the data and everything. Because right now it's all shared in chats and through many different platforms and there are dozens of repositories and uh, as much as you know as we want uh, the different projects to work together and they do towards a common goal you know they they do go off and do their own stuff and sometimes they do not communicate on all levels so you know various projects redo work which has already been done by others so this is our attempt to pull everything together around uh, our devices at the very least and uh, why the Pine Note? Well, the Pine Note is for us a, uh, a brand new type of device. It's from a software perspective in its absolute infancy. And so it seems like a very good um, device to uh, test out the DevZone system. So essentially, organization is really what I'm hearing here. It's allowing a cohesive management strategy for Pine64 devices. How is that, how does that relate to specific devices? Like what could people see and say, well, these are the kind of problems that are going to be solved from a specific device. So if I have a Pine phone, for example, or if I have a Pine Book mm-hmm. Pro, how does this platform help those specific devices? Right. So for instance, the, the Pine phone being a good example, as everybody knows, we had at this point uh, three or four revisions of the PinePhone hardware. 
uh, starting with the first revision, which was strictly for developers, then uh, the next one, which was Braveheart, and then uh, a number of other smaller sub-revisions, improving the hardware incrementally. These were very small uh, improvements each time, but, you know, many small improvements also have a tendency to uh, to stack up to something bigger over time. Um, and the way we usually do it right now is we we ask developers, usually in open chance, what would you like to see improved in the next iteration of the hardware? And they give us feedback. And that feedback is all in the chats, in the chat log. But you know how chats go. In in chats, you have everybody talking over everyone. Right now with DevZone, we're going to have the newest schematic front and center with people commenting underneath this schematic. And as soon as a new schematic gets uploaded, uh, and also people can uh, say if, if there are hardware engineers, which we do have, thankfully, uh, in the community, so they can draw up and write up their own schematics and suggestions for improvements and upload it to the dev zone. And as soon as their schematics get uploaded, a new discussion or subforum, basically internally, gets spawned. Wow. So the the benefit to end users is that developers will be able to work more efficiently, closer to us. Uh, we don't we won't miss any suggestions. If somebody throws out a suggestion in the middle of the night when I'm sleeping, uh, there is a possibility, a very real possibility, I'll, I'll miss this suggestion, right? If it's if it's up in a very dedicated place on, on the dev zone, uh, you know, I will not miss it. I'll see it. It will go to our, our engineering team. It will go to our vendor, uh, to the factory we're working with. So from the end user's perspective, you can expect that hardware improvements um, in future iterations will be faster and that we the likelihood of us incorporating uh, suggestions uh, from the community is going to be further increased. That's fantastic. Can anyone sign up for an account at DevZone or how are developers granted access? So anyone can go and uh, sign up to the DevZone. We have uh, more applicants than than we expected. And we, um, we do not have um, quite as many projects right now to prescribe everybody uh, to. And, you know, the, this is gonna. This is a project which is a long-term project. We're starting with the Pine Note. We're gonna see how the system works. Then we're probably gonna take one of the big projects. So that would most likely be um, the Pine Phone, then uh, the Pine Time, and so forth and so on. And we're gonna grow it out. So, but anyone can apply. Uh, when you apply, we don't ask you for any personal data. We ask you for your internet handle. If you want to provide your real name, then that's fine too. We won't, We mostly want to know your credentials and your uh, interest area. Uh, so this is what, you know, what we uh, assess applications based on. So basically merit in a sense. Can you tell me a little bit about Femtostar? When you first made this announcement, I about fell off my chair. I looked at it and I said, man, private peer-to-peer -peer text messaging, this is amazing. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how that works, what the technology involved in making it work is, and what the latest development is? Where are we at with that project? So just to be extremely clear, uh, we have a 
early form of co- cooperation with the guys from Femtostar. They've got a really great idea, which is one of uh, basically a more private and open form of uh, communication. As I understand it, it is based on a satellite uh, link system based off 40, uh, some, uh, I think, 48 satellites. And they have secured uh, the funding to launch the first satellites up into uh, space. Now, obviously, we take uh, a real interest in this project and we want to give them as much exposure as possible. Uh, I think that anything that makes it possible for you to have a more private um, form of communication with others uh, you know, is a goal that should be uh, championed. Um, we have become a sort of a promoter of their idea. However, I am not intimately, uh, I don't have intimate knowledge of how their project is proceeding at this time. Last time I heard, they had funding for the first two satellites. And, you know, obviously two satellites is quite far away from uh, 40-some but I do wish them all the best, and I really hope that in time uh, they will be able to realize their vision. Uh, I think it would be good for 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 everyone interested in um, in having a more private and a more secure way of communicating uh, with each other. So the way that I understand that you're able to connect or will be able to connect um, when all of this is complete is through the 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 Pine Dio uh, gateway. And so this is using LoRa, is that right? So yeah, so the so the Pindio is a separate system, and this is a system which we have been working on, and this is not directly tied to uh, to the guys at Femtostar. Um, our vision for Pindio is so yes, so it is a LoRa based uh, system, and uh, LoRa for those who don't know is usually used for. Um, IoT type applications uh, over long distances without using cellular uh, networks. So uh, I know that in the United States, say in California, it's used broadly uh, to say track wildfires. So um, if, if fire starts somewhere, there's a sensor which uses LoRa, and these these nodes are meshed together, and they pass on information where the fire is and uh, all sorts of uh, information. Um, it, it has a very low data transfer rate, but it's a rate which is good enough for transferring text messages. And uh, the way we envision this is that we're going to have, or we already do, prototypes of uh, our uh, gateways. And you and those within your immediate uh, surroundings, so that's... Um, people up to five kilometers, so that's, what, three three miles or so, will be able to connect to this uh, gateway and uh, communicate with each other uh, in a text form via messages without using cellular uh, network. But those gateways, they can also be connected to uh, the internet, so you can bridge uh, somebody in um, United States with somebody in Europe, with somebody in Asia, and they can be texting with each other using 
connecting to 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 uh, via the LoRa protocol to their respective gateways, and obviously you can use a VPN or some other form of uh, secure connection between the three nodes on the three continents. Have you looked into? I, I assume that the appeal here is because it moves the Pine devices away from any sort of centralized service, and this allows one Pine phone to be able to communicate to another Pine phone. That's kind of the idea, right? Yeah, I mean, Pine phone, the Pine tab, uh, you know, we are certainly thinking about having more and more devices in the future equipped with, with LoRa. Uh, so I think we're going to grow this ecosystem. Um, um, I. I mean, I don't necessarily want to give people the impression that this is going to be a substitute for their LTE connection because it's not. You will not be able to watch, uh, you know, internet videos on this or make phone calls. But um, if you want to have a really private way of um, texting each other, then this is absolutely a very good, uh, uh, very good application. Another application is, you know, for say. Emergency responders, uh, people out hiking in the um, in the mountains, uh, where you can have a direct peer-to-peer communication, or you you can have a mesh of these lower devices talking to each other. So it has a broader application uh, than just you know uh, having a chat with your mate uh, across uh, town. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of devices that you could manufacture or you could get into manufacturing. And so you start with a laptop and I look at that and I say, wow, that's incredible. You've totally delivered on this idea of a freedom respecting open source laptop. And then you move on to phones and tablets and all of those kind of make some sense because they're all kind of similar. And then we get into smartwatches. And I remember, again, kind of like when I was reading about what you were doing with your partnership with Femtostar, about fell off my chair and I see smartwatches and then I saw the price and I'm like, there's a typo. That can't be right. And then it is right. Hmm. And then it, again, far exceeds expectations. But then you guys get into things like soldering irons. And I remember when I first saw it, I thought, this is a mistake. This, this is the, They're stepping out of their lane. This is not going to go well. And then it turns out to be fantastic, and it charges with Type-C, and it's not like the other battery-powered soldering irons that can't melt anything, and, and it works fantastically. And as a ham radio operator, I do a ton of soldering, and I come mm-hmm. to love it. And so and now you're on to e-readers, and the e-readers, it is probably the most powerful e-reader out there. How do you decide which projects to take on and what hardware to manufacture? How do you decide when to step into that space? Um. Yeah, this is a good question. I mean, it, the answer is that internally we do have a dialogue on what would be fun to do. So we we certainly do have some core projects which we want to realize. Uh, one such project is definitely a, a Linux phone. And this is something, you know, which we're going to be building upon in the years and years to come. The other thing is being uh, ARM laptops. That's something, you know, that's going to be our bread and butter as well as single board computers. These are things which we are, you know, this is the core of our business. But this does not mean that we don't get to have uh, fun and exciting side projects. And I do think that in particular, the Pine Time, that's our smartwatch, is one of those projects that is both uh, extremely fun, exciting, and the, the craziest thing about it is that it is truly, completely, and fully 
community driven. So they the community told us when to, you know, how to go about the dev kit. They told us how to go about um, uh, even delivering it to the market. So like they would they said, okay, now you know the core developers told us now we think that it's ready to start selling to people. Yeah, people who do not necessarily are not necessarily interested in code or uh, figuring this thing out. They just want the functional open source smartphones. So they told us, they said, right, we're going to make the 1.0 release. And we think that this is, you know, at a, at a stage where you can start selling it to regular end users. So it's truly one of those projects that we have going, one of the side projects that are completely top to bottom, uh, community driven. And all of sort of, these side projects that we have are really usually just some field of mine or uh, TLMs. That's the person behind Pine64. It's his personal interest. And we kind of see where we go with it and if it's feasible and if it will be fun for community members. And uh, we, we see where it takes us. Yeah. So on that note, is there any device that you've ever wanted to make and you've wanted to step into a space but said, yeah, it's just not practical or it's just not cost effective to do that? Oh, that's a great question. So until recently, definitely e-ink devices would fall into that category. Uh, e-ink devices, e-readers from big companies such as Amazon, they are heavily subsidized. So I remember when I was doing research on this uh, a good couple of years ago, because people have been asking us to to create an e-ink reader for, for, for quite some time. And I did research on this, and it stood out to me that we could absolutely not only not match the price tag of uh, of Amazon's devices, we could not even get close. And the reason for that is because obviously uh, the Kindle is a gateway in a sense, uh, which uh, for, for for the product which which Amazon is actually selling uh, in this case books, uh, so they're happy to subsidize the actual device, something which we wouldn't obviously do because we would run open software on it. Um, but another thing, and you're probably the first person I'm telling this publicly that I, that I have been wanting to do for a long time, and I'm still advocating for this, is I would really want to do a um, a TV stick. Uh, so, um, one of those, I, I believe that the Amazon has ones which are called Amazon fire or something to that effect, which you plug into your, uh, television and turn it basically into a, a smart TV. It, my idea behind this is to make it relatively inexpensive, obviously running, uh, Linux based on one of our, uh, existing single board computers. And you could have, uh, either, um, LibreLec running on it, or you could have, I can't remember what, what the KD guys are calling their user interface, I think it is, uh, Plasma Big Screen. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not, um, I, I, I guess I've not played with, with, uh, with KDEs, but I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Kodi and OpenELEC. Mm-hmm. Sure. So, so am I. Uh, so, and I've been thinking, you know, if, if we could make a device which could play back, 4k uh video with hdr and plug into the back of your tv but instead of you know streaming from uh netflix or uh, amazon or what have you you would you you it would allow you to stream uh, uh 
um, local media from from your NAS or Plex or what whatnot. And you know, if you have children at home or multiple televisions, you could have them, and there would be they would be relatively inexpensive, and you can attach them to every single. Uh, television at home and just watch uh, anything you know uh, you have on your NAS uh, on your uh, televisions without having bulky uh, PCs uh, attached uh, to those televisions I thought that was a really fun idea and one which I want to go back and explore at some point uh, in the future that would be fantastic. I, I'd, I'd be first on that list. How about a router? Has that something has that been something that you've ever considered producing? We have considered producing a router. Uh, we had gotten quite far with uh, with the idea on two different occasions, uh, but we never felt that we could uh, do do justice to the sort of device that people wanted us to create. Um, obviously, it would have to be based on our uh, current SOC selection. And until uh, recently, we didn't feel that we had an SOC that would make uh, a good SOC for a router. Now, when we make these sort of decisions, now I'm I'm not giving you an impression that I am a uh, a specialist on networking because I'm not. So what we usually do is we actually reach out to you know we have such a big community at this point that we usually reach out to people, and we do have people who are experts in this field, and we talk to them and we say, "Is look." We, we drafted this. Does this seem reasonable? And every time we came to them with a proposal, they said, you know what? Yeah, but this, is, this isn't really what people want from you. So a router is something that is very much something which we definitely will explore at some point. Uh, and I would love to see a router happen. But uh, the, the time has to be right and uh, the SOC at our disposal to make a router also needs to be correct. How about a Pine Phone Pro? Uh, a just like you did with the Pine Book Pro, and then iterated on it. Um, any chance of a Pine Phone Pro coming in the future? I mean, I, I think that the Pine Phone has uh, become such a successful story uh, for us, and it has become a success story for the entire mobile Linux uh, community in a sense because it has really pushed the development of the various operating system and given life to a, a good couple. Um, and not only um, operating systems, but also user interfaces, uh, that it would be silly of us not to continue uh, you know, creating um, open... Uh, mainline Linux smartphones. Now, right now, in the current uh, global kind of uh, crisis where no components are available to um, medium and small sized uh, manufacturers, uh, you know, even considering making, uh, you know, a, a PinePhone 2, a PinePhone Pro, is not exactly something that is super high on our agenda. But I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that this isn't something we have not thought about because that would be lying. Of course, we have thought about it. You mm -hmm. know, it's a, ve it's a very, uh, it's one of our best products in a, in a sense. So absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I think you can expect that in the future there will be uh, more mobile phone offerings from us for sure.
That's fantastic. So speaking about the Pine phone specifically, what operating system is best for the general day-to-day user? Oh, you know what? I am not going to be picking um, favorites uh, okay. here. I think that... I, th- I think it would be highly unfair to uh, to the developers um, to do so because everybody across the board has done such a good job on uh, on their respective operating systems. Now, what I can say is this: that if you are somebody who's uh, looking for the closest experience to um, um, to your Android or your uh, iPhone, then Ubuntu Touch is probably still the most accessible to new newcomers. And literally in recent months, the UbiPorts team has done an incredible job on bringing their build up to speed uh, on the Pine phone with working cameras, uh, uh, location services, a stable modem and all that stuff. So they've done an incredible job. For those people who are uh, very interested in having a basically a desktop PC with a customized user interface in their pocket, and that's a kind of a different subgroup of our user base, uh, they have quite a choice. Uh, and you know, we are working with uh, with the guys from Manjaro and from um, from KDE and Plasma Mobile. Right now is making massive, massive, massive strides, and I'm really happy to see how far uh, Plasma Mobile has come in recent months. And then there's the hardcore users, and they've got quite a selection uh, to choose from now. And I see that most, uh, you know, very advanced, capable uh, Linux users they choose uh, a user interface called XXMO, and that usually runs on top of um, Arch, which is a very very good community build of Arch. We we there is an entire uh, group of developers, Arch developers who are working on the Pine Phone uh, specifically, and SXMO is basically a very lightweight, almost terminal based uh, user interface uh, for, for 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 the Pine Phone, where you navigate using a a mix of the the buttons the volume buttons and the power button and all sorts of uh, swipes and and presses on the screen it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing what has come out of it on on the very advanced technical side who is the target audience for pine devices i think obviously you know there are the true geeks and you get those right off of the bat the people like me who come out and say i've always wanted linux in my pocket and here is the ability to play with these devices that are completely open, are privacy respecting, uh, completely transparent, you know, fairly priced, all of those things. What about the people who say, well, I'm not a geek. I'm not necessarily technically savvy. Is a Pine device right for them? Could they still get joy and, and, and have fun with that? Or is it really more for tinkerers? Hmm. Uh, uh, the answer is kind of a t- twofold. In general, our devices are primarily aimed at enthusiasts uh, within the Linux community. However, uh, or even more broadly, open source community. However, devices such as the Pinebook Pro have reached such a level of maturity. I mean, I'm having a conversation from the Pinebook Pro with you 
this very moment. And I've been using it uh, daily. Uh, I'm currently abroad. So I've been using it daily for well over a month uh, as my daily driver. And I admittedly, I don't do anything particularly crazy. I don't render videos. I don't do any sound editing and stuff. I, I mostly write on it. I sometimes watch some videos. But this is one device which has reached very, very uh, good degree of maturity where I wouldn't uh, necessarily say that you have to be a Linux enthusiast to use it as long as you're on as long as you understand that there are limitations to which uh, packages are available for ARM. Another example would be the Pine Time, uh, which has recently reached a very uh, high degree of maturity. Uh, as far as you know, the all the hardware features they are fully functional. The user interface the, and the default operating system called Infinity Time uh, is fully featured. Uh, the um, uh, step counting works. Uh, the tilt to wake uh, works. Uh, the all, you know um, the heart rate monitor works. Everything you would want works, and there are now. Um, companion applications for both Linux phones as well as Android phones as well as iOS recently. So this is another device which has reached a very high uh, degree of maturity. But then you have, you know, the Pine phone, which is slowly creeping up to a point where I could recommend it to um, friends who use desktop Linux but are not particularly technical so i think it's going to reach this point in the next half a year or so and then we have devices like um like the pine note which are for all intents and purposes experimental devices and we don't really know where it's going to take us we'll see we're going to work with our partner projects and see what we can um where you know what shape it's going to take together um so while we have really started as a as a brand that is aimed at the most advanced users within the open source community. I think that we have now a uh, a range of devices which most uh, users who are somewhat accustomed to Linux could absolutely use on a daily basis without an issue. Can you talk to me a little bit about the Pine Note? Uh, obviously, those of us that have been following Pine64 and keep our finger on the pulse were extremely excited to see that you're entering into this space I was pleasantly surprised to find out that the device that you're going to be releasing is better, really, than any device out there. Now, we understand as geeks, of course, that as as you put it, and again, I want to I want to thank you for your transparency and stuff like this. You should expect to write code on the device, not notes. And so that really gives us a very stark idea of, of what people are purchasing. And I think geeks are very OK with that. Um, but has there been anything new since the announcement that's come out um, on the Pine Note as far as a timeline maybe for the operating system um, or any sort of development since the time that you've made the announcement? Yeah, so, I mean, at this point, um, the big challenge is to get the e-ink uh, display working with um, mainline Linux kernel. And until we reach that point, we can't really even talk about. I mean, we can we can sketch up and create mockups of what sort of user interface we think will work well on the display. But until we have it, you know, working, 
it's uh, very difficult to um, to to imagine um, how it's going to work in practice. Um, the good news is we have some excellent, excellent talent working on this, and I am confident that within a couple of months we will see the EIG uh, panel working with uh, with the mainline uh, kernel. But at the same time, there are people in our community who have started uh, creating mockups of of the user interface. I know that people w within the uh, KDE team have some ideas of their own what may work on this sort of technology. And we have been, uh, there are people who have been working on e-ink uh, devices uh, in the past who have reached out to us with some ideas of their own. So there are many developments. Um, as for, you know, I don't want to give a timeline because I am so deeply, deeply untechnical that it would be unfair of me to say, oh, I think it's going well. And I, sure. you know, I think we're going to see... Uh, this thing working within whatever three four months i mean i i have too little knowledge uh, uh especially of this technology to 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 make an educated guess um but it will happen and um there is a very good chance that we're gonna see uh some variation in user interfaces for the pine note uh in the same way that we see a variety of different uh, user interfaces for the pine foam. Uh, people are still kind of trying out and seeing what is uh, what is an interesting and workable paradigm. And I think that you know uh, this is something that's going to happen on the pine note. Uh, and I think that in the months to come, we're going to see more and more people enter uh, this uh, area, and um, we are looking to have early release models sometime in October. Then, you know, it depends how long it's going to take uh, take us to get proper certification uh, for the device. It may take us another month or two. But, you know, by Christmas, we will be probably shipping uh, Pine Notes to early adopters. And at that point, you know, there can always be one or two developers who get this device into their hands and then overnight, you know, they solve some very critical issue and then, you know, development just takes off. Any thoughts on introducing encryption into the Pine Note? Is that something that could be that could be considered? I know that for me personally, if I was taking a device around the idea of having like a companion device that I maybe have more personal, more sensitive information is somewhat appealing. But then I would think to myself, well, would I want that encrypted? And I don't know if the, the, if the hardware would be capable of supporting something like that or if that's something that you've considered. So I figured I'd ask. For sure, the hardware is capable of encryption. As for whether this is something which we will see on uh, developers implement in their operating systems... This is something that remains to be seen. It's too early to say. I mean, if the PinePhone is something, uh, uh, you know, an example to go off, then for sure this is a feature which many users care about and something that I expect that we will see on the device in, in due time. We had an email come into the show a few weeks ago and gentleman was asking 
if it's possible to have uh, text-to-speech and if there would be any considerations made for people who have disabilities, is that something you guys have looked into at all? Is this a question regarding um, Pine the Pine Note, Note specifically? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So the good news is that the Pine Note has uh, both speakers and microphones. So in from a hardware perspective, this is something that would be absolutely possible. Um, whether this is something that developers will prioritize, um, you know, whether accessibility features will come as a priority uh, when developing um, some sort of user interface from the ground up. I'll be honest, most likely not. As I see it, uh, you know, there there are people recently who have been reaching out to me uh, saying, oh, you know, uh, Debian has such a great, access- so many great accessibility features. I, I bought the Pine phone and, you know, those features are not present in uh, the Debian counterpart, which is called Mobian. And, you know, why haven't you guys thought about this? And first of all, I mean, it's, you know, it's not us, but the development team. But secondly, uh, absolutely, we want, you know, our devices to be used by as many people as possible. But um, the software status of the phone is such that my mother couldn't use it, let alone somebody with a particular impairment. Sure. So, um so uh, you, we have to understand that implementation of this sort, of these sort of accessibility features, takes uh, takes time. So uh, will this be a feature in the future? I'm sure. Uh, is this something that will appear within the first year of the of the Pine Notes existence on the market? I highly doubt it. What is the biggest need that the community can fill? Because, Wukash, there's obviously somebody out there that is listening to this and they're saying to themselves, I want to get involved with Pine64. I love what they're doing and I want to share in that mission. Is there anything that is needed from the community or a spot to fill that you'd said, hey, you know what? This is something we could really use some help out. So if there's somebody that has this skill or this passion, we'd love to talk to you. We are always in need of people who know the ARM architecture particularly well, people who are low-level kernel uh, developers. Uh, We have plenty of those, but there's never enough. Um, If you are somebody who who is very, very good at getting things going, just, you know, the very, very uh, lowest level of development then please, please, please do sign up to the DevZone. We would love to have you on the team and uh, for sure talk to you and uh, include you in early prototyping stages of of the hardware. Uh, We're always in need of of people who know how to get, um, you know, ARM devices going. Is there anything else coming down the pipe that we should be aware of or anything to look forward to coming next from Pine64? We do have a couple of things we do, which we want to create. Um, Whether these plans are going to pan out or not within the next, say, half a year or nine months is really not uh, up to us. As you may know, and I would assume many of your listeners are aware, uh, we are in the middle of the worst component crisis in uh, known history. There are people at the factories, which we work with, who 
outright say, you know, I've been in this industry forever and I have never seen anything like this at all. Um, and from what I know, the situation will only get worse towards the end of this year and probably well into the beginning of next year. Sure. So as much as we have fantastic plans for fun devices and uh, exciting projects, uh, whether we'll be able to realize them or not, uh, very difficult to say. So at this time, the Pine Note is definitely our new device that we're going to be focusing on. There could be other things in the pipeline, but when they'll come, you know, I, I have nothing to announce at this time. Wukash Arachinsky, he is the community manager for Pine64 and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Makers of the Linux-only smartphone developed in cooperation with the community for the community. It's a toy store for geeks. You can learn more at pine64.org. Buy your stuff at pine64.com. Wukash, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program. We really appreciate having you. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. The music in my ears means we're out of time. Hey, thanks for listening this hour. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Kurt Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. You can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. Hey, we invite you to go over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. That's where you'll find all of the articles and references we use to make the show each and every week. We'll see you back here next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.